Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. We have a new sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, located in Decatur, Georgia. It is possibly the best bookstore in the known universe. It's a local, independent children's bookstore, but they're so much more than just a bookstore. If you've never shopped there, you're missing out. You can call and speak to a bookseller anytime to get personalized recommendations and follow them on social media to keep up with the many, many events they organize. You can find them online at littleshopofstories.com and they ship all over the world. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And today we're talking with Renee Watson, the Newberry Award honoree of Piecing Me Together, which also won the Coretta Scott King Author Award. She has authored many picture books and has a new book out in her Ryan Hart series, which are middle grade novels. Hi, we're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Renee, obviously you've written a lot of books and I was reading in some of your other interviews and things online, your bio on your website that you started writing when you were a child. And in particular, I I think I read that you got very serious about poetry once you read Langston Hughes. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how, what connection you felt with his work at a young age. Yes, I loved I loved to read as a child, and I often tell the story of how there weren't that many books that were given to me that reflected my experience, um, where characters looked like me, came from places like me, and so reading poetry kind of filled that gap. Langston Hughes, Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, Gwendolyn Brooks, those were the poets that I grew up reading. And I just felt like, oh, these people sound like me. They sound like my family. They remind me of the folks that go to my church. I just felt like the speaker was speaking directly to me in a way that some of the books weren't. So poetry just became a love of mine. I used to recite it at school assemblies or even at church, um, at community events. And yeah, I just fell in love with that form of storytelling. And throughout my whole life, it was an anchor for me and kept me connected to reading and made me more excited to read because I connected with the text. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. Like, one thing I love about Langston Hughes is how lyrical his poetry is. And then one thing I love about Giovanni is how she can take concrete images and make them into just surreal moments. So I, yeah, I, I love that, that you... Um, immerse yourself in poetry. And then you actually, uh, it sounds like you started a program at Langston Hughes's house. Yes. In 2015, I was walking through the neighborhood of Harlem where I live now. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, but I had lived in Harlem for years and was walking by his brownstone and realized that it was empty. Empty meaning I was surprised that no one was doing programs out of it or that it wasn't a museum or a space for the community to visit. And so I looked into it and gathered other author friends and we met with the owner of the brownstone and were able to rent the brownstone and lease it for four years and hold programs out of there. So we had readings and book launch events and poetry workshops for young people and all kinds of artistic gatherings in the home of Langston Hughes. 
At the Brownstone, we had programs for young people where we held poetry workshops, open mic nights for the community. We had several um, authors and illustrators come through and teach classes, give readings, be in conversation with each other. Uh, it was a beautiful space, a very sacred space, and I'm really proud of the work that we did there. We're no longer in that space, but for four years, we were there. We had a very vibrant, beautiful, loving community. I will forever be grateful for all of the authors and illustrators and book lovers who supported us and who came through that space. Yeah, we're not we're not an organization anymore, but the name of the organization was I2 Arts Collective, which was inspired by his poem, I Too Am America. It was about our individual stories and owning who we are, taking up space, being proud of our identities, and also the collective, and listening and sharing, and what does it mean to be in community with each other. So again, it was a sacred space, and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we did there. Um, has any, since you've moved out of that space, has anything happened with his house? Has it finally been turned into a museum? Not that I know of. Uh, we moved out right before COVID began. And so I'm sure that that has impacted what's going yeah. on there. But so I don't, I'm not sure about the okay. space. COVID must have impacted your work a lot. I feel like your your work in general like is so personal that probably that in-person connection is is very important. Is it is it nice to be back to doing in-person events now? It is nice. Yeah, I've missed being in person with young people and talking with them, talking with educators. I definitely, you know, I was very grateful for all of the teachers and bookstores and organizations who figured out how to do things virtually and and kept community going that way. But there's just nothing like being with someone in the same room. So yes, I'm very happy to be traveling again and sharing the work in person with young people. You were actually recently at a couple of our very favorite places, um, the Miami Book Fair and uh, Little Shop of Stories. We're We're very close to Little Shop. I love them. Oh my goodness. It was such a beautiful night. I, so my sister, one of my sisters, I have three, used to live in Atlanta. And so I used to go there all the time. She doesn't live there anymore. So I'm not down there as often. So it was just nice. It felt like a homecoming in a way to reconnect with folks that I haven't seen in so long. Um, the bookstore always shows me love there. And yeah, the evening was a beautiful evening. Lots of folks came out and we had a good time. I did a reading there and a signing, got to meet a lot of young folks. It was beautiful. No, oh, that's wonderful. Miami Book Fair is back in November with hundreds of your favorite authors and their new books, and you can see them in person and online. Come to downtown Miami or watch at home for best-selling children's and YA authors like Case and Calendar, Mary Pope Osborne, and R.L. Stein, the master of spooky tales and spine-tingling suspense. Rainbow Rowell, Chris Grabenstein, and Zoraida Cordova will also be there talking about love stories, mysteries, and mythical creatures like grumpy unicorns and fire-breathing chipmunks, plus story time, comics, arts and crafts, science experiments, music, robots, and other family fun in Children's Alley during Street Fair weekend. Stop by to learn how to play the drums, hang out with stilt walkers and balloon twisters, or write your very own poem. And there's lots of other cool stuff to do and see, too. Miami Book Fair starts Sunday, November 13th. Details at MiamiBookFair.com. 
I know your newest book is Ways to Share Joy, and it's a middle grade story, the third in the series of the Ryan Hart stories. I was curious, I know also you've had some picture books out this year. Yes. So I wrote a picture book about the life of Maya Angelou, and I was invited to write that. So it just is so special to me. Ryan Collier, who is one of my favorite illustrators, I have several, but he's definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, He did the cover for Piecing Me Together. And we kept saying, you know, well, yeah, that's collaborating, but it's not the same. You know, we want to do something together. And all these years later, he reached out and was like, hey, I'm 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 writing a book on Maya Angelou, but why am I writing it? Like, like you, <laughs> you write it <laughs> and I'll do the illustrations. And I was like, yes, that was such an easy yes for me. So, you know, they're like, think about it. I'm like, oh, no, I don't even think about it. I'm going <laughs> And like I said earlier, you know, I grew up on her work and knowing her story and had wanted to tell it for some years and just kind of kept putting it on the back burner. And so I was just grateful that uh, he reached out to me. And yes, his illustrations are just breathtaking and stunning Mm -hmm. to me. And it was an honor to collaborate with him and especially on the story about, about Maya. Yeah, it was a special project. I'm really proud of that. Speaking of illustrators, I I did wonder, you have so many references in your books to like visual art and visual artists. Do you have a background in that yourself or do you do any visual art? No, I am an admirer of visual arts. I don't make any of my own. I I do a little collage, which comes up in, in quite a few of my books, but my background and my connection to the arts is just knowing the power of art. And I majored in art therapy. That's actually my background. Um, And so I know that young people, especially they're at an age where they don't have a lot of power, they don't have a lot of choice, and a lot is happening to them. And they're not always able to articulate the traumas that they're going through. Art is a way to express that and to get it out. And it's also a way to speak up and to use the power that they do have, which is their voice. So uh, a lot of my characters create any some form of art, whether it's music or poetry or visual art, because I know the power of art making and how it's a cathartic feeling to take chaos or to start with nothing and then create something beautiful out of it. So that metaphor of um, your life might not be perfect and there might be all this chaos going on, but there's still a way to to find some peace and some joy and to bring things together. It's something that is a theme often in my work. I did wonder that too. You you do so much with, like in your life with, with, you know, trauma survivors and, you know, Hurricane Katrina survivors and things like that. Like, how do you, how do you, not let that get to you because I'm sure it informs your writing choices, but your books are so full of just like joyful moments. You know, I think that my life, my actual personal life has been full of both joy and sorrow. And at the same time, you know, it's not like I have months of just joy right? <laughs> and ne- <laughs> Or vice versa. I don't I don't go through long periods where there's only sadness. There's always something to be grateful for, or a little glimmer of of joy. And so I want to help young people understand that and be able to hold those truths that 
Um, you can be facing some very challenging, difficult times and not but, and find things to be grateful for and seek out ways to heal and love yourself and love the people around you and accept love from them. So yeah, I think for me, I want to help young people process what they're going through and not feel like what they're going through is the only thing about their story, right? We're not what we've been through. And so when young people are battling and surviving and coping with trauma, you are not what happened to you. And so that's a big part of healing is to realizing that we, we're made up of so many moments and this is just one moment in this really big story of our life. So I think that, that that's part of where the joy comes from in my work is just helping young people, well, really holding a mirror up to the reality that there is joy even in the dark moments and to help young people realize that they are not the traumas that are happening to them. That's such a valuable lesson, not only for young people, but for adults. I'm it's I'm grateful that we have somebody like you out there sharing that. Thank you. I think that's one of the reasons why I really love the Ryan Hart books. Not necessarily that there's trauma in them, but there's a blending of everyday life and the ups and downs that a, a kid deals with, the joys and the disappointments. And I read that you were inspired by... Beverly Cleary's Ramona books when you were thinking about writing this series. And I, I was just curious about, I was curious if you could speak a little bit about that inspiration. Yes, Jenny loves the Ramona books. Oh, yeah. I'm <laughs> so like a do big I. longtime so, fan. Yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and that's where Ramona lives. <laughs> um, and I remember reading the books and recognizing Clickitat Street, which is right around the corner from my aunt's house. And <laughs> I knew the library and the park and the school that is in that neighborhood that Ramona would have been, you know, going to. And so it just was so cool to me to be reading my city on the page and to recognize Albertson's grocery store <laughs> and like all these places, um, these just little details about the Pacific Northwest even that I don't know if other kids were picking up on who didn't live in Portland or in that area, but I for sure knew exactly, you know, how she was painting setting. And so I always say she gave me permission to write about home and to put the experiences of Black girls living in the Pacific Northwest in that very same area, loving their communities and being loved by the community. And also the permission to write complicated girls. You know, I feel like sometimes when, when we write girl characters in middle grade, they are to one extreme, either they are the bully or they're the mean girl, or they're so perfect and so sweet and have it all together. And I don't think anyone is always anything, right? So Ryan is complicated. She She's competitive and sometimes a little selfish and she gets jealous, but she's also very loving and caring and giving and generous and kind and talented. So I just, I like Ramona. I I wanted to create a character who's a little messy and not always kind of coloring in the lines and who's also having fun. Speaking of joy, you know, a lot of my books um, tackle social issues and young people in, in my books, the characters are 
standing up against injustice or, you know, figuring out what their voice is going to do in the world. And I also, and that is true. I know those young people. I think it's important to have those books. I write biographies sometimes. I'm talking about the painful history of our nation. So also I wanted to put work into the world that is just celebrating black girlhood and the communities that that I grew up in, the neighborhood that I grew up in, which was so full of beauty and love and so much fun. And I just wanted to make sure that I am telling nuanced, balanced stories and that my body of work is not just the monolith of struggle and black pain, but that there's also black joy. I just need to share that. So I started sharing you know, reading books, more bigger books to my six-year-old at bedtime, right? And so Mm -hmm. the Ryan Hart books and then the Ramona books, she just like will lay there and her eyes get really big and I can see it on her face. She's thinking to herself, they know, they know what I think. They know what goes (laughs) in my head. (laughs) And because, you know, Ryan, Ryan is very much uh, you know, a kid. And I, I think that voice is so authentic. And I just think it's it's so needed to have that that voice that sounds like an actual kid. I, I think sometimes when people are writing as children, it, it's like they're writing as the gifted kid or the kid who would write a book at that age. And that's not the usual kid that you meet everywhere, right? And you do such a great job at capturing that voice. And so I just wanted you to know it's been a lot in our family. Thank you. Uh, I was going to say, I really, I think one of the things I really love about the Ryan Hart books is the small moments. Just because, to use an example, like getting her hair done by her grandmom. Yeah. It's it's interesting because as a, as a white person myself, you know, there's these small moments that I don't, I don't get privy to in a lot of books because most people just don't put them in. Like you said, it it tends to be about extremes, right? So like big conflicts or hard social issues, but you you miss out on the small day-to-day things that really make people feel like real people instead of just characters on a page. And so I appreciate so much that you put that in because those little moments with your family like make a person a person. Yeah, you know, my I often get this question from young readers and they're asked like what's your favorite part of your book that you wrote? And it's just the hardest uh, question to answer. But I For the Ryan Hart series, I always say that the favorite moments for me happen when Ryan is getting her hair done by her grandmother. If if you read the whole series, there will be four books total, so three are out now. I'm working on the fourth book as we speak. Yay. In each book, there's a hair moment. She gets her hair straightened in the first book. In the second book, she gets it braided and has beads. And in the third book, she gets to wear this big Afro puff. And... Yeah, there, there's something very intimate and special about getting your hair done. And that time for Ryan to be with her grandmother is always a moment where her grandmother is giving her some kind of wisdom or there's some kind of breakthrough for Ryan emotionally uh, as they're sitting and talking. And so those things are very special. And I absolutely remember getting my hair done by my mom and by my aunt. And it was always 
like a special moment in our in the household um, hair day, <laughs> getting it washed, <laughs> getting it combed out, and getting it braided was always fun and and yeah, really special. So, thank you for pointing that out and and noticing those small moments that make up who we really are, right, and who we become. So I'm glad that 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 resonated with you because it's it resonates with me as well as the writer. Yeah, no, it really did. And also, speaking of small moments, please, please tell me that there is a recipe for that chocolate spice cake somewhere because it sounds so good. <laughs> I checked the back of the book immediately and I was like, shoot. Sure there is. I don't have one, but I'm sure there is. You know what's funny is I don't bake at all. I can cook. I can throw down in the kitchen, actually, but I cannot bake at all. So I'm always, when I'm writing Ryan's scenes and she's baking, I'm calling friends and Googling things and trying mm-hmm. to, you know, figure out stuff because that is definitely not my gifting, not baking. <laughs> baking is so concise and accurate. You know, if you make a mistake, it is detrimental and you don't find out. So it's too late. <laughs> Whereas cooking, I feel like it's a little easier to make mistakes and clean it up and doctor it and, you know, mm-hmm. experiment a little. So no, I don't have the recipe, but I'm sure there's one out there. All right, listeners, if anybody has a recipe that approximates the chocolate spice cake in ways to share joy, please, please email me because I'm eight and a half months pregnant and I want it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll find you we'll find it for you and or I will I will I will figure it out <laughs> We would love to hear about your experience of getting the call that you got a Newberry honor for for this book. Oh my goodness. So I'll start with this. I had just lost my father. He had passed away oh no. um, a few weeks before that phone call. And and my mother had been sick at the time, who has since passed away. I'm so, so sorry. The phone was, thank you. I am too. They, um, yes, I'm very much still grieving. And so I, every time my phone rang, I just you know, it was bad news. It was someone's in the hospital. Something's going on. There's an update on what the doctors are saying. And so I was just in this place of sadness. And I don't live, I my family doesn't live in New York. So I also sometimes the, the time that I get these phone calls are at, you know, early in the morning or really late at night. And that always gives you panic when your phone rings at a time that, it, you know, you don't usually have a phone call. So I, I get this call that's at a really early time in the morning. I was like, oh God, what is happening? But then when I look at it, I don't recognize the number. So I was like, well, I almost didn't answer it. <laughs> so then I, I pick it up and I can't, I think it was the Newberry first. They called and and gave me the news. And it's like a whole group of people on this phone call, you know, several voices cheering and celebrating and I'm crying and just quiet. Like, I, I don't even think I said anything because I was in shock. I was in shock that it wasn't bad news. I was grateful that it wasn't bad news. And then I was like, wait a minute, a Newberry honor. And so that was so special. And, you know, I thanked them eventually after I collected myself and we talked for a little bit and just celebrated. And then I hung up the phone and literally I was sitting on my bed and all I did was stand up. I don't even think I had made it to the door yet. And the phone rang again with that same area code. And I was like, oh, no, they made a mistake. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, this is just how bad I just, you know, my mind was always thinking bad news, bad news. 
So I answered the phone and it was the Coretta Scott King Award Committee saying that the book had also received the Coretta Scott King Award. And so I just, that day was so overwhelmingly special, joyful. Yeah, I got, I celebrated with friends impromptu in Harlem. We all gathered and just did a toast and hugged each other. And it was just so good to get some good news and get a moment to take a break from the grief and just, you know, and be honored in that way. So yeah, I felt so good um, because of what was happening personally in my life. And then just thinking about, you know, I took some artistic risk, I feel, with piecing me together. It's not written as a traditional novel. Some chapters are only one sentence, some are lists, some are, you know, longer she doesn't have a love interest like a lot of books for young people do. So I just wasn't sure that anyone was going to read this book or let alone like it or love it. So to get recognition in that way felt very, very special. That's that's just beautiful. I Not to sound like a sour old prune, but I was relieved when I read it that there wasn't a love interest. I know. <laughs> I just, it's lot just, of people you know. say that to me too. It's it's so interesting the things we think young people want to read about mm-hmm. um, versus what they really want or what you know will really resonate with them. And a lot of young people bring that up and talk about how they appreciate that Jade is is figuring out how to love herself and how to be loved by the women in her life. And yeah, there's some really strong relationships, but. I didn't want the distraction of a romantic love in the way of the story. And so I'm glad I followed my heart with that one. And I think it's so strong. Like like you were saying, she's learning how to love herself. She's trying to figure herself out. And I mean, there are times in our lives where that's all we're doing. And I just, I feel like there's such an honesty in that and such a beauty in, like you were saying in the chapters that are that are one sentence, you know, lists all of that stuff, it's all just, you see her bringing herself together and piecing herself together to be, to be Cordy. And it's just, it's just beautiful. Just thank you. Well, and honestly, like thematically, it works so well because the text feels like a collage in that way. You know, it's like a collage of little pieces and big pieces and poems and relationships and, you know, microaggressions and joys. And it, it works so well with the theme of the book. Yeah, I was intentional about making the chapters feel like these little, you know, scraps of her story, of her life, of her day. I think our memory works like that. We don't tend to remember everything play by play, step by step of what's happened, but we can retell something, you know, bits and pieces that make up who we are and what we believe about ourselves and the stories we put forward. And so, yeah, the book, I wanted it to feel like a collage, like these moments coming together to tell Jade's fuller story. And I wanted to take care of the reader also. So when I'm writing, I'm also thinking about literally, and I think there's the poet in me that thinks about what do words look like on the page and how can the page and the words kind of be a container for emotion. And so if you go back through and study it, you'll, you might recognize Sometimes after a really big moment has happened, that might be a little heavy. The next pages are light, not maybe in what's happening, but in the actual look of the page. There's not as many words. 
there's some space and some room to kind of breathe. And then when things are intense, there's more words on the page. And so I'm just thinking a, a lot about placement and the length of sentences and all of that when I'm writing, just to help the reader, especially younger readers, process and be able to kind of take a breath and a, and a pause when they get to the end of a big scene that's a little heavy. I love that. You know, and I also, I love that at the end, I mean, spoilers ahead, listeners, but there's not some big external climactic event. Like, I, I love that the climax of the story is really just Jade learning to speak up and advocate for herself and to know that that's okay. Like, that's a wonderful, you know, resolution, if if you can call it a resolution. Yeah, you know, I, I think it is so important in especially in realistic fiction, to have realistic endings, not happy endings. And so I do want to have hopeful endings. I, I think I want my readers to know that the main character is going to be okay, but that life is still happening and there's still going to be things that, you know, she's going to have to figure out, but that she's gained some tools along the way. So they've watched her grow more into herself and advocate for herself so they know that, if she can stand up for herself and advocate in this moment, she'll be able to do that again and again and again when she faces more. So yeah, I try to close things up and 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 have some closure, but not necessarily like the character getting exactly what they want <laughs> the way they want it, you know, because that just is not what happens in life ever. <laughs> so I, I wanted to keep it in line with just that idea of being able to hold all those things that sometimes you you might advocate and not get what you want. But that for Jade is not really the point. The point is to speak up and to use her voice. And that's the growth. So I, I was thinking a lot about that with the end of how do we bring it to a close where it feels hopefully satisfying, but not too perfect of a bow. I really appreciated that in her relationships with her friends too, you know, where you know, her friend who was not recognizing the the racism that, that was happening to her all the time, you know, all the little microaggressions. I, it's just, it's interesting. I feel like in my own life, the people who I am acquaintances with, I let, I let things slide. You know, if we have some kind of a conflict, I'm just like, okay, you know, you, you do you. <laughs> but if it's somebody who's really my friend... I'm willing to have an uncomfortable conversation. And I think that's the definition of, of what divides, you know, your friends from your acquaintances. If you're willing to do that, they're really your friend. And I liked seeing that in your book where she's willing to have this hard conversation that might have a bad outcome. And, and her friend was not portrayed as like a big villain either. Like clearly her friend was trying to see the best in everybody and hope that a bad situation was not happening. But... But it was, and they were willing to yeah. like talk about it and work it out. It was wonderful. You know, so and right before um, piecing me together, the book that I wrote before that was This Side of Home. That also dealt with a Portland community and race and class. In that book, I feel like it dealt more with along the lines of race. And so in piecing me together, I really wanted to think about class and the intersections of race and class. And so Sam, her friend, is a white girl who is economically poor and they're at this private school. So they both, and, and Jade is also economically poor. So they bond over that and really have a deep friendship, a very meaningful friendship. 
And I wanted to to kind of explore, well, what is it like? And this side of home also dealt with interracial dating with my main character who's black and dates a white guy who's moved into a gentrified neighborhood. So I wanted to think about interracial friendship and what is what does it mean to be best friends with someone who sometimes completely gets you and sees you and understands and then other times you you are so different and on you know completely different pages and how do you love even though you're different, you know, it's easy to love people who we always agree with or who always get us. Um, so Jade is doing that hard work of having to figure out what is worth fighting for and what is what do you walk away from? So just, yeah, I wanted to explore this idea of the Black woman, Maxine, who people think, well, of course you two are going to get along. You're both Black. And they don't right away because of a class difference. Maxine is wealthy and doesn't understand where Jay comes from, really. And they learn to grow into each other and love each other. And then, you know, kind of vice versa with her and Sam. So, yeah, I wanted to think about all of that and how can we have these complicated, difficult, but honest conversations and still respect and love each other. Because we're living in this world together. We need to figure it out. (laughs) So I hope that um, that's an example, I hope, for young people to see how you can work through um, conflict with someone who you really care about, that it can be worth it. And some people you do need to walk away from, but some people are worth fighting for. And fighting with, (laughs) honestly. I think if you're willing to like really get in there, you're right, and do the hard work, that it, it makes a huge difference. So yeah, thank you for providing that example. You've written books on different historical figures, and I was curious about, you know, Betty Before X and your book on Maya Angelou and Florence Williams. I was curious what kind of research process you use? So for all of those books, they were very different, actually. Betty Before X, I co-wrote that with Ilyasa Shabazz, who is the daughter of Malcolm X and, and Betty. And so I had, you know, the greatest resource I could have right there mm-hmm. with me, interviewing her, listening to her, talking through what she wanted this book to be, what she knew about her mom's life. And, and we interviewed a few friends of Betty and people who knew her um, and knew what her church was like as a child. So that was mostly based off of like oral stories and histories that have been passed down from people who knew her. And then filling in the gaps, I I did a lot of research on Detroit and what was Detroit like in the 40s and, you know, just kind of putting myself back in that time. For Florence Mills, it was so interesting because there's not a lot written about her. And I I did most of my work at the Schomburg Center in Harlem, uh, which is a research library. And they have these collections where folks donate to the library or give to the library people's papers, you know, diaries, passports, uh, letters, playbills, whatever. So they have the papers of Malcolm X and James Baldwin and Florence Mills. And so I I went there several times, had to put on my little white gloves and only could write with a pencil when you're in that room. You can't check anything out. And just was fascinated all the things that they had about her life and the, the real playbills from the 20s and from when she was performing. 
And I read articles about her and just tried to dig up anything I could that way. So that felt a little different, you know, of course, than writing Betty Before X. And then Maya's song, because I grew up reading Maya Angelou, I have heard, seen her in interviews so many times. I felt like I knew her story. And so much of that was me fact checking what I thought I knew or what I had read. And, you know, so I went back and I watched her documentary several times over and over again, taking notes. I tried to take as many interviews where she's telling her own story and telling uh, memories from childhood so that I could have her own words and her own retellings be a part of the book. So yeah, I approach biographies just with a lot of questions and trying to always think about what does a kid want to know? Like what's interesting to a young person and everyone's life matters, right? So what is it about Maya Angelou beyond that she became famous and that we all know her name. Why is her story important to tell? That's always the question I'm asking. Like, what is a young person going to be interested in? How is this going to relate to them? So I'm trying to find those little nuggets along the way. And that's how I approach when I'm digging into someone's life story. And we all know who they became and they become these big giants of, of people. I'm interested in when they were not that person and before they became these big voices that we know, um, how did they get to that? And so that was, those are the stories I'm kind of searching for when I'm doing my research, not just the facts of their life, but the how. And I think that that care comes through. I, I was really I, I love that you went into the arc like an archive and you were doing actual like you were actually handling documents and everything. I'm a librarian, so I just, I love that stuff. I think it really comes through in your writing. There's a tangible feeling to to these picture books and these these historical books that you've written. Like it feels, they feel real. These people feel real, not just like characters. <laughs> and it's so refreshing because we, uh, we also, in addition to interviewing authors, we review all the Newbery books. Well, that's our eventual goal. And recently we've been reviewing the very first season from 1922 and, Ugh. and nobody, <laughs> nobody clearly in the, in that, in that year at that time was thinking about things from the kid's perspective or what kids would find interesting or the small moments in people's lives. Like it's so wonderful and refreshing to, it's such a palate cleanser to read your books after reading those books. I can't even tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm interested in that too. Like, I I want to know that I can do big things, right? And then I didn't have to be born a family that was destined for greatness. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think sometimes the way we talk about leaders, activists, poets, all the people who were telling the, these stories about, we start with when they are already so great. And I'm, I want to know the journeys that they took to get to where they are. And I think young people need books that show them perseverance and that, you know, like we were talking earlier, that a bad thing can happen to you and you can survive it and you can go on and do amazing things with your life. When I think of Maya Angelou and, and the abuse that she went through, you know, I was really, I was like, I, I want, I knew that I wanted to put it in the book. It was just a question of how, how do I make it appropriate for that age? But also reminding myself that, well, 
it's happening at that age. The the kid, the audience that I am writing for mm-hmm. is actually going through a whole lot of stuff, and they need to see characters, whether they are historical characters, real people, or fictional characters who are enduring those things too. And if we don't write about that part and we sanitize books, I think it helps. It 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 continues to perpetuate that you're alone and that no one else is going through this and this can be isolating. So I try to put the humanity in people's, like keep the humanity in people's stories so that young people can see, like, look, they they are going through things just like you and, and they survived. So you can survive too. I think also that attitude, I just, I feel like you must've been a really good teacher. Like I know that you're still teaching in some capacity, but I think, I think, I don't know. I was reading that you were a teacher for what, 20 years? Yes. So I was a teaching artist. So not a full-time classroom teacher where I was, you know, having to do grades and be in the school every day, but as a guest writer in the school, some places called writer in residence, teaching artist. Um, I would go in and spend the whole school year with a grade. So like I would go in and twice a week teach the seventh grade class, poetry or theater, depending on what the school had requested. And I got to really know, you know, teachers and young people. And it was the best work of my life. Like I loved it. The only reason why I stopped being in the classroom was because writing took me around the world and I was traveling so much that I didn't want to be inconsistent in young people's lives like that. And so I had to step away, but I loved being in the classroom and teaching young people and hearing their poems and, and processing what was happening in the world through the art. It was the best. And seeing what they care about and listening to them definitely impacted the stories that I write and the types of stories that I want to tell. I'm always thinking of the young people that I've met over the years and who I've mentored and taught. And they're kind of at the forefront of my mind. Their voices, their stories are are always with me when I'm writing. Did you mostly teach like at the middle school age, the age that you kind of write for? Or although I guess you write for all ages at this point. (laughs) My teaching was mostly middle school and high school. So I taught seventh grade, eighth grade, and freshmen the most. And then here and there, I might do like a poetry workshop with the fourth grade class that was more like a one-off type of thing, or the seniors helping them with like college essay, personal story prep, stuff like that. But the bulk of my teaching was seventh through ninth grade. Wow, you got the real social upheaval years. I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> Those were the hard years, right? Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't redo it as a seventh grader. I would never want to go back to the seventh grade and relive those years of my life. And I think that's why I enjoyed being in the classroom is because they're, they are finding themselves. They're figuring it out. Their emotions are so intense. And that makes for some good writing. Like they just haven't learned how to center themselves yet. <laughs> they're, they're not too cool for school. They're not, you know, writing what I, what they think I want them to write about. So the power that was on the page from these young people was so inspiring. And yeah, I just was always blown away by their boldness and their courage to to tell their story and to stand up and do poetry slams and compete. I mean, yeah, it was good work. I worked for an organization called Dream Yard, 
and Community Work Project. Those are two organizations in New York that I did the most of my teaching artist work through. And it was it was great. I learned a lot about young people and education and the power of poetry. I'm sure they learned a lot too. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> We'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, our local independent children's bookstore, for helping to make this podcast possible, both financially and through their phenomenal programming. They're offering an exclusive promo for our listeners when you shop online at littleshopofstories.com. Just use the promo Newberry Tart to get 10% off your purchase. That's Newberry with one R, N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, to get 10% off your purchase. Can you tell us about a Newberry book or two that you love? Sure, or two. So I, in recent years, love um, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson and was so excited when that one and also was over the moon. I think I might have screamed louder than Meg Medina when, <laughs> <laughs> when she won the Newberry. And yeah, I was just so excited and was able to go to that ceremony and see her accept the award and, and make her speech. And so, yeah, those are two that um, are favorites of mine that I recommend a lot. And then I think a classic one would be Roll of Thunder. Oh, cry. Yeah. So excellent um, choices. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> and then do you have anything else you would like to promote or tell us about that's coming out soon? You know, I I don't have anything coming out soon. I've had two books that just came out, Maya Song and Ways to Share Joy. And I'm working on the fourth book. So a lot of people have asked, is there more Ryan Hart coming? There is. And I am closing her journey out. We get we 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 will see her graduate from the fifth grade and find out what happens, you know, with her friendship with Kiki and are they going to the same middle school or not? And I'll close up some of the other loose ends. Uh, But yeah, I'm excited and a little sad to say goodbye to Ryan in this way. And yeah, but I'm looking forward to working on this, this fourth, fourth installment. And we're looking forward to reading it. (laughs) I'm glad there's going to be one because I really want to know about the, uh, the prank war. I know, I got to figure out what she's going to do next. (laughs) (laughs) Renee, thank you so much for speaking with us. And yeah, it was wonderful to to have this conversation. Yeah, I hope you have a wonderful day. (laughs) You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for joining us today as we spoke with Renee Watson, author of 2018 Newbery Honor Book, Piecing Me Together, as well as the Ryan Hart series, including her most recent book, Just Out, Ways to Share Joy, and many, many, many others. Thanks for joining us today on the Newbery Tart Podcast. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.